Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Devago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress passed a $740 billion National Defense Authorization Act as appropriations and President Biden's Build Back Better plan remain in the works. Uh, The BBB will uh, take several weeks longer to negotiate in the Senate despite House passage of the measure uh, some months ago. Russia continues to mass forces on the Ukraine border as Moscow makes clear its demands of NATO and Europe uh, not to invade more of the country that Russian forces invaded in 2014. Pressure on China mounts not only over the Winter Olympics, but also uh, the administration's new move to cut Chinese state companies from the U.S. market. And this is our last roundtable of the year, so we look back at the big stories of 2021. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, uh, the senior advisor to the Bipartisan Cyberspace Solarium Commission, who is the senior director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our new Downlink podcast with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a deep and thoughtful dive into all things space, as well as our Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who talk uh, about uh, going into detail on all things naval. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Iron Mike Herson, start us off. We have a bouncing baby uh, NDAA, so it's better late than uh, never. I know you fought hard uh, for elements of this measure, uh, obviously for your clients, but I know that you're also able to take a highly objective take uh, at this point. Talk to us about what's good, uh, sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly of of this uh, measure. I want to go around the horn and get all of your takes, but also give us kind of a quick update on where we stand on appropriations uh, and Manchin's demands of President Biden on uh, Build Back Better. Okay, sure. So why don't I start with uh, things that got done this week and then get on to things that didn't get done. So as you just mentioned, uh, the NDAA uh, did pass this week and it passed with an overwhelmingly uh, bipartisan vote, 89 uh, to 10. Only 10 members of the Senate voted against it, including two members of the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Senator Warner, uh, Warren. Uh, Gillibrand most likely voting against the bill because they did not give her all the changes she wanted into the UCMJ and, and sexual assault, but very strong bipartisan support uh, for this bill. And you mentioned appropriations. You know, Senator Leahy, you know, took to the floor, uh, you know, during final passage to remind everybody that we still need to enact an appropriations bill to pay. Uh, for our national defense and reminded everybody that a full year CR, which some Republicans are out there clamoring for because they think they get a better deal with the Trump numbers. Uh, like he reminded everybody this would reduce uh, defense spending by over $35 billion. And when adjusted for inflation, would actually cut defense spending uh, below last year's levels. So, you know, the uh, we talked about optimism on appropriations last week. Uh, some of that optimism faded this week, but I think we're going to see this ebb and flow up until February 18th. And I'm still cautiously optimistic that there will be uh, an omnibus uh, by, by the 18th, especially because 
this CR is especially painful because of the lack of anomalies. Now, something else that the Senate uh, and House did this week, too, was, was raise the debt ceiling. Uh, the Senate uh, was able to pass that, and then it was sent over to the House uh, for passage as well. The House had to come back uh, for that vote this week. Uh, one Republican, Adam Kinzinger, voted for it uh, in the House. Uh, now, what's interesting about the debt ceiling raise is that it raises it into early 2023, uh, which, you know, to me, makes me harken back to what happened in the elections of 2010 when the House flipped dramatically when there was a Republican wave, which is anticipated to happen again in, in 22. And uh, now the new Republican House will be forced to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, and remember last time, that's what brought us the Budget Control Act. So I think that we have to look at that as a possibility that the Republicans, if they do get in control again, will be looking uh, for some measure to cut spending uh, in order to raise the debt ceiling next time around. So stay tuned for that. Um, and then what didn't get done, as you pointed out, too, is you know, build back better. We talked last week had lost some momentum uh, and Biden admitted that yesterday in his statement, basically recognizing the fact that it is not going to get done this year. Uh, so now the Senate uh, will not be in session next week. Uh, they will go home uh, and and more problems pop up. Not only a, a very bad CBO score, which talked about how expensive these programs would be if they were made permanent, which, of course, they would be. No one's going to be very hard to stop these programs once they started. And the Senate parliamentarian uh, rejected uh, the immigration protections, which was not a surprise. However, there are several House Democrats who said they would not vote for a final bill without those immigration protections. So uh, this is going to be very difficult, uh, I think, in the end, still for the, for the Democrats to pass. Look, what I find fascinating about this is everybody you know, looks for CBO scores and then doesn't pay any attention to them. Just like tax cuts are supposed to generate revenue, they're spending in another way, uh, just like this is spending and, and you know, Democrats being ill-disciplined you know, every one of them is chasing its own, their own individual elements and finding reasons to uh, to object to it. And obviously, then I think there are a lot of people who are, who are sort of stunned uh, at his uh, ability to to stop uh, what, he, you know, I mean, is 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 the party's platform and agenda. Um, let me go into a little bit greater uh, detail into defense spending, because uh, we've got sort of a finite amount of time and a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, Dove, let me go to you on elements of the NDAA. Patrick, get your sense and then mark yours. Uh, you guys obviously track this stuff very, very closely, whether for Asia Pacific, whether for Europe, for you know, Pentagon spending uh, and cyber. Uh, Mark, I know you've got some cyber um, stuff you want to discuss as well as the log 4J vulnerability is revealed that could be really prolonged and significant in its national security implications. Dove, start us off. What did you like about this NDAA and what you what did you not like about it? Well, first of all, what I liked was uh, the fact that Senators Reid and Enhoff agreed uh, to uh, compromise. And the rest of the Senate agreed as well. And, and so did Adam Smith and Mike Rogers. I mean, this was truly bipartisan, which is a very big deal right now. Adding about $25 billion to the uh, administration's uh, request uh, was important. Uh, there were elements in it that clearly are legacy programs and people will criticize. But there's other stuff that's really, really important. $7 billion for a serious Pacific Defense Deterrence Initiative. Um, uh, Patrick may want to expand on that. 500 million more for unfunded requirements that uh, Admiral Aquilino had asked for in the, in the Indo-Pacific is a big deal. Focusing on uh, not just uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, but also on what's going on in uh, Africa and Central and uh, Latin America, which we always tend to forget about, but they put some money in for that. Uh, and especially want to get a sense of where the Department of Defense is, is programming and thinking about 
these regions because of both Chinese and Russian penetration. And then you've got several commissions that have been set up that once again, they've got the National Defense Strategy Commission. If you remember the last one on which my son Roger was a member, um, they were the ones that came out with the request for a significant increase in defense spending, which this, uh, which the uh, NDAA pretty much uh, closely reflects. Uh, they're going to have another commission again. There's going to be a commission on Afghanistan looking at the, the overall 20-year issue, what happened, what went wrong. Uh, and uh, there's going to be uh, a yet a, another commission on uh, the planning, programming, and budgeting process, which pretty much uh, hasn't changed since Robert McNamara put it in uh, in 1961-62. So lots and lots of changes. There's a lot more in there. Uh, it's a very, very... Uh, expansive and extensive bill. And, and it's a credit to the uh, committees that, that they actually pushed it through. Patrick, uh, your sense, and then Mark, uh, yours on what elements uh, of the measure that you guys found particularly noteworthy. Go ahead. Well, I agree with everything Dove said. Um, adding five more ships as well to the administration request debate uh, it was welcome, especially in the Pacific. But the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, bumping that up a couple billion dollars above President Biden's request was um, not just uh, bipartisan support for pushing back on China, but it was also pushing back on the Biden administration's calibration of how to spend that money and whether they spend it just on platforms for us or whether we spend it more on capacity building and exercises and interoperability with allies and partners in the region. And I think that latter point is where Congress uh, really wants to go and where we need to go. Um, so this was a welcome uh, development on this authorization bill. Mark? What did you like uh, about it? What did you not so, like about it? First, I'll, I'll talk about the cyber side, then I'll talk a little bit about uh, PDI, uh, Pacific Deterrence Initiative as well. On the cyber side, it, it was a, it's a good bill. Um, it's another good cyber year, 39 separate cyber um, initiatives split across. About a third were DOD only, a third were DOD plus other agencies, and then a third were like uniquely not DOD, which is about the way this has been going. It wasn't as comprehensive as last year's, which was 60 plus. Um, uh, but about like FY20s, which is about 40. So that's three good years in a row of very good work. Um, I was happy in the Slurring Commission, we had about 13 of the things we've been recommending go through. But, but I will say the two big ones were lost. The one was incident reporting, which I think will recover. Um, th this is the, uh, the idea that you have to report an incident to, um, to CISA within a certain number of hours uh, and, um, and provide a certain amount of data uh, so that we can have a we can begin to understand the scope and scale of the malicious cyber activity. And the other one we lost was some joint collaborative environment, which is kind of the infrastructure, the ligature for information sharing with inside the government and between the government and the private sector. And every year that we delay that, we delay appropriations to kind of support it. And we delay the building of that kind of public-private collaboration network that we need. Hopefully both of those can be recovered in other kind of either freestanding or in other bills that, that pass through in January, February, March. Um, and, and the proof of that is that a, a workforce one actually just passed the Senate that had previously passed the House that I think will become law in the next couple of weeks. And if that I was a, and that was a, and that was a standalone measure, right? Which, what, was a standalone which, which measure, is what's which was, encouraging. Yep. Good to see, you know, Rosen, but, uh, you know, it was a it was a uh, bipartisan. And, uh, you know, I know Senator Rosen has been pushing hard on it, as has Senator Peters uh, on that side. Um, the, um, I do want to mention the PDI. Um, you know, the, the original Indo-PACOM Pacific Deterrence Initiative was the right way. This is what came out as what's called a 1251 assessment. It was about 50%. It was a, a just under $5 billion for this year. It was about 50% things the services were going to do that P 
Paycom wanted to highlight, but then about 50% of things that the services didn't want to do necessarily and weren't paying for. And, um, and that's those kind of Pacific specific initiatives that services don't necessarily love are the ones that are really hard. They don't get done because the services have the final um, decision on the credit card. And so um, that was about a 50-50. Now, obviously, uh, Patrick's right. The, the DOD one was just intellectually vacant, right? It was five, $5 billion you know, on a destroyer, an oiler, F-35s. It was things that could be anywhere in the world. Yeah, probably they'd spend some time in the Pacific, but that was intellectually uh, vacuous. The, what the Hill did was $7.1 billion. And on the face of it, that's a lot of money. Uh, but I will say it, it was about 80 to 85% stuff the services were already doing, including it took account for $4.1 billion in ops and maintenance west of the international dateline. So that's the steaming hours and flying hours that we we're already doing. And it took credit for $1.5 in Milcon that was planned out years ago. So, you know, right there is like, you know, $5.6 billion of the $7.1 um, so I do. I would like to see the cut now that Congress has set those as baselines. So growth on those is is an increased commitment. But the idea that you know this was new stuff. Now I will recognize. I, I do agree with Patrick that there were some increases in some um, ally and partner training and exercise efforts. Um, but and there was an increase in the Guam defense system from the the 114 million that the DoD put forward, which is way too little. It was plussed up to 214 million. But that's still less than the 350 million that Indo-PACOM was asking for. Um, and I think the most important thing in here is they did ask for a report from Indo-PACOM on what's the kind of the risk there, you know, the assessment of the risk of DOD's budget and posture and, and work with allies and partners. Um, so I, I think that we are probably bending towards the right track. But you know, until we see PDI that's more like EDI the European deterrence initiative, where we bought a lot of things that UCOM knew we needed to deter Russia, but the army really didn't want to buy. Um, as it happened, we used what's called OCO or overseas contingency operations funding for that. Until we see that kind of expenditure where the services have to buy things they weren't intrinsically desiring to do, I think we're still probably a step behind on, on the Pacific deterrence initiative. Uh, and and I think also we we do need a mental shift that uh, prior, j- just like uh, CENTCOM and the CENTCOM was prioritized during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and in Syria, it's very, very important to prioritize Lung Aquilino and the Indo-Pacific Command and put them in the driver's seat. And when they make requests, it really hops to the top of that list and they get a prioritization order on it because I think it's it's just ludicrous that we, we've got somebody who's really doing the toughest job in defense now, uh, not have the resources. And oftentimes, you know, as we discuss on this program, it's relatively Mickey Mouse amounts compared with um, you know, what we might be uh, spending, expending or wasting flat out some, someplace else. I want to uh, keep keep the conversation moving. I want to very quickly move to Russia uh, and Ukraine, as well as uh, developments between uh, Beijing and the United States. Obviously, Caroline Kennedy, uh, former U.S. ambassador to uh, Japan, a very successful diplomat, has been uh, named to become the U.S. ambassador to Australia, which to some is a very powerful symbol, right? I mean, she has an ability to pick up the phone and make things happen no matter where uh, they are. Dove, start us off between Russia, Ukraine, your sense and and fear, right? A, a lot of the same language, NATO reaffirmation affirming um, support for Ukraine's uh, accession uh, to the Atlantic Alliance and and Russia basically putting its demands out, which is the United States and NATO have got to get out of Eastern Europe and former Soviet <laughs> areas, right? It, it, this, this seems like we're going, you know, and, and the concern that Russia is being rewarded 
right, for being very muscular and being on the verge of an invasion of Ukraine um, and the international community calling on Russia to stop, which isn't likely to work. And nobody's abundantly clear how exactly to punish Russia. Uh, you know, wh where where are we? Where are we going? And what does it mean? And then, Patrick, want to get your sense uh, on the latest uh, U.S. Uh, China uh, news and, and what you guys make of it. And then, Mark, maybe get you to comment on both of those. Go ahead, Dove. You just commented that Lunga Aquilino needs to be the top of the list, and, and it's arguable that Europe has to share the top of that list now. Uh, what what uh, Putin clearly is doing is saying, look, I can invade Ukraine at any time. I'm totally uh, indifferent to whether you're going to have sanctions because I expected those. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I won't invade them if you do all the things we I want, which is no more further expansion. Ukraine doesn't join NATO, neither does Georgia. Go back to nineteen uh, uh, to tonight to the uh, nineteen ninety seven uh, status quo, which is before all these uh, Eastern European countries join NATO. Uh, no exercises, no training, no military equipment. Basically, uh, as you put it, uh, you know, create recreating the Soviet space. And the difficulty is that if we do not. Uh, put our money where our mouth is, which is essentially to say, too bad, these are free countries that joined NATO freely. And if they want us to exercise to protect them, we're going to go ahead and do it. And oh, by the way, if you try to invade Ukraine, you're going to get enough of a bloody nose that your own people will be fed up with you. Um, we're going to have to take a very, very tough stand. And I think that one of the big mistakes, one of the many mistakes we've made about this part of the world was the assumption that Russia, well, you know, they don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of people. They're not going to be able to pull this off. Of course, they could pull it off. They're going to have 130 million people for the foreseeable future, which is about the size of Japan. And they could and they'll spend all their money on, on the military uh, at the expense of their own people, which have put up with even worse in the past. So uh, Putin is, is playing He's playing super hardball. And the only way you play hardball is by hitting the pitch that you get. And right now, it doesn't appear that we're doing that. We're being mild. We're saying, oh, sanctions or banking uh, restrictions and so on. He doesn't care about that. Um, Patrick, walk us through on uh, Asia, right? Uh, other company, uh, other nations following suit in the U.S. Uh, diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics. We have Caroline Kennedy being named as uh, ambassador to Oz, uh, as well as the administration getting very tough on Chinese uh, state-owned entities, uh, whether they're of a scientific stripe or making electric buses, right, electric vehicles, uh, getting uh, blocked from the from the U.S. Uh, market, uh, all of which has raised uh, Beijing's ire. So where where are we? Good week, bad week. What does it tell us? Well, the, the Putin Xi Entente uh, continues, and indeed Putin will be going to the Olympics. No surprise there. Um, it, the Prime Minister of Japan will not be, but the President of South Korea probably will be. Um, the Prime Minister of Australia, Prime Minister of UK will not be going to the Olympics. So you start to see there is a division among US allies, even on um, where to draw the line on trying to put pressure on, on China. And most of them don't want to put pressure like South Korea um, in a way that hurts their economic interests if they don't have to. And the Olympics is, a, is clearly a, a, you know, um, an optional call. It doesn't directly impact on, uh, on China's power. Um, I think the uh, Chinese power, though, is um, rising within China. That is to say, 
the propaganda is absolutely peaking. The expectation that the Chinese model is victorious, you know, is going to just keep ascending as we head toward the 20th Party Congress next fall uh, in China. Uh, and at the same time, the fear that China's economy is slipping has to be uh, felt even in Beijing, where, for instance, the Japan uh, Center for Economic Research put out their annual report showing that China is not likely to overtake the U.S. economy in size. And remember, China's four times the size of our population, but it's not likely to reach uh, the overall GDP of the U.S. until now 2033. That's five years later than earlier forecast. That's because the Chinese economy is likely to be growing below 5% and declining every single year between now and into the future. Um, and that's uh, if there's no conflict. If there's a conflict, then all bets are off about how Asian and China's economy will be doing. So China's trying to toe the line on Taiwan and Xi's power um, and demonstrating leadership in the region at a time when the United States is slowly getting its act together. I mean, I know there's criticism all around and there are problems all around. And yet, um, you know, whether it's the NDA or whether it's uh, meetings like, uh, you know, of quad leaders, um, and there's a buildup on the Indian border again here. So you can be sure that India is going to continue to be working with the United States and Australia and Japan and others to push back on China. Um, you know, there are a lot of good developments for U.S. policy overall to maintain deterrence in the Asia Pacific uh, and to uh, keep working on what Secretary Blinken's talked about, the five pillars when he was in uh, Jakarta and in Kuala Lumpur in, in Indonesia, Malaysia this, this past week, talking about the a rules-based order, uh, allies and partners, a, a broad-based economic framework that frankly is the weak point and still under development, um, building resilience, and then finally, fifth and finally, security. So his, you know, the, the defense is the last talking point for the Secretary of State, at least in Southeast Asia. Uh, and yet there you can point to developments like AUKUS. So Australia, UK, US uh, defense arrangement, I think it was this, the signal event of, of 2021 for US defense policy, because it really gets to all of the potential strengths of the United States working with allies and partners on critical technologies that really could have an impact on defense. And with Caroline Kennedy going as ambassador to Canberra, that's great news because uh, she was once uh, assailed when she was uh, appointed to Japan as being a weak ambassador, but in fact, she became a very capable uh, uh, sort of representative for US policy. And AUKUS uh, it allows her to work with both the UK and in Australia, uh, working with the United States, but also with Japan, a critical partner for Australia. So it's going to be a, a great assignment for her to advance uh, U.S. interests on security and defense. Mark, uh, let me br bring you into the conversation. Obviously, you were J3 out in the Pacific for the U.S. Indo-Pacific uh, Command. Um, you know, walk us through what, what you just heard from both Patrick and Dove, uh, because you obviously look at Russia as well, and Russia has occupied uh, bandwidth uh, during your uh, long military career, but as well as working for Senator McCain uh, up on the Hill. Well, thanks. First, I uh, want to uh, attach myself to all of Patrick's comments. I think he was spot on. And his description of us getting slowly getting our act together is exactly right. Um, there are things, I mean, there you could look at it, uh, you know, one of the breakthroughs I'd mentioned as well is that Australia and Japan have both indicated a much greater willingness to support U.S. efforts um, confronting a, uh, a Chinese um contingency in Taiwan, you know, whether, you know, and it's always nice to, you know, to me, that means we'll certainly have access and we might even have allied cooperation. Those are important things for us to plan with and really make our, um, make our job a, a very hard job, a little bit easier. And then you see small things like, 
putting the long-range anti-ship cruise missile on P-8s. Seems like a small thing, but you know that is the weapon system that most concerns the um, the Chinese Navy, and it would limit them to you know force them back into their territorial seas if we could have a large number of employment options. And that's exactly what the P-8 gives you. It's a 737 flying from you know scores of different airfields to be a real challenge for the for the Chinese. So these are the kind of small things that contribute towards slowly getting your act together. I'd contribute, you know, I'd say a big thing, you know, outside of diplomatic and political in that economic is for the president to make the right decision on CPTPP, you know, the, the revamped um, Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think if he did that, that would be the kind of a, that would be the kind of sea change that would really help the United States in, in Asia. Um, looking at Russia real quick, I, I will say this, that as likely as a, as a, a traditional military uh, action. I think it's it's more likely Russia was successful in the gray zone in 2014 and in um, in uh, Crimea and and uh, uh, Donbas in eastern Ukraine. I think they'll try that again uh, as a it, you know when 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 uh, when one country cares a lot more in this case Russia than the other the United States about the absolute facts on the ground in a in a place like Ukraine they really have the upper hand in gray zone operations and in general democracies struggle when there's inconsistent or, or misunderstood information. And I think the Russians could practice cyber disinformation campaigns and, and maybe some nondescript soldier insertions in a way that would really make it difficult for us uh, to confront them. So I, there is a lot of risk in, um, in Ukraine, but probably more of the gray zone variety than the overt military invasion. Uh, well, right. But I, I mean, then again, right. Hard power matters also when you mass tens of thousands of troops. I, I think um, I don't know if I saw um, I saw a tweet from Corey Shockey uh, of American Enterprise Institute who'd mentioned that there were 57,000 uh, troops, you know, Russian troops in Donbass uh, alone. Right. I mean, so that gives you sort of a sense of the raw firepower. Uh, that the uh, Russians can uh, can bring to bear. Um, I, I want to uh, keep uh, moving. Dove, uh, we have to talk uh, because I do want to get your sense on sort of the big stories of, of uh, 2021 uh, as Omicron looms, right? I mean, we were starting to get more comfortable getting out and around. Uh, Patrick, you had a funny story about a, uh, an Asian diplomat uh, talking to you about, wow, you know, we're gathering here, the likes of which I can't in, <laughs> back at home. Uh, and unfortunately, I think there is a sense that we may be locking down. But Dove, I want to give you a quick opportunity to talk about uh, the Iran nuclear negotiations, uh, the fact they're not going anywhere, uh, and the real deft diplomacy, um, and I would even argue successful diplomacy, Naftali Bennett is doing, uh, to make sure that everything that he does is behind the scenes with the American administration and with international powers, um, while not causing a fracture with Washington or or any other power, right? In, in terms of its opposition to where we are on the nuclear deal. Where are we on the nuclear deal? Where are we going? And the sense that actually the needle is moving even within this administration about what is the art of the possible and what might have to be next because this administration has kept sanctions on the Iranians throughout. Yeah, well, in the first place, uh, you know, the Iranians have enriched to 60%. There's talk that they might enrich to 90%. There's talk that they might have three nuclear bombs uh, relatively soon. Uh, the talks, yes, they're going nowhere, and I don't think they will go anywhere because, as I've said before, Raisi, the president uh, of Iran's number one priority is to become supreme leader, and, and uh, a deal would risk 
that goal simply because it would be the United States that would celebrate it more than the uh, Iranians. We can't lift all the sanctions because some of them are congressional and the administration couldn't do that. So there's not likely to be a deal. Bennett is, is handling this exceedingly well on two fronts. Um, he met with Mohammed bin Zayed, the uh, crown prince of uh, the UAE, uh, who also happens to uh, basically be the informal ruler in many respects. Uh, they had a four hour meeting. Uh, I doubt that they did not speak about Iran. Uh, and uh, it's becoming pretty clear that Israel is the backup for the Emirates, for the Saudis, and frankly, for all the Arabs in the Gulf uh, against anything that Iran might do. And at the same time, they are now cooperating in uh, the military sphere uh, that would have been unimaginable if, uh, a year or two ago. Dubai Aerospace is cooperating with Israel aircraft industries, for goodness sake. So uh, on both fronts, both dealing with the Gulfies on the one hand and dealing with Washington on the other, uh, Bennett is playing a very, very careful game. Now, one major indicator of whether the needle has really moved in Washington is when uh, is if and when the Israelis get the green light for uh, the tankers, the KC-46s that they've asked for. Clearly, uh, if they can tank up, it would be uh, much more uh, uh, likely that they would try to strike the Iranians. It would still be exceedingly difficult. Iran is the size of Texas. Uh, it's got facilities all over the place. They're hardened. They're deep. But nevertheless, that would be a signal that the United States really has moved away from simply uh, a hands-off relationship with Israel when it comes to a possible attack on Iran. Um, let me uh, branch uh, the conversation out. Michael, uh, bring you back into the into the discussion. What did you guys think were the biggest sort of needle-moving stories or uh, important stories that maybe didn't get as much attention as they should have over this past year that has included coronavirus, a new administration, um, you know, ongoing and and sadly deepening political divides, uh, significant disinformation. I mean, we we can all agree large numbers of the American people are sadly misinformed uh, about perhaps the outcome of the last election, but as well of what they think is actually going on. Uh, and and very thoughtful people repeat uh, repeat some of these absurdities. Uh, to us on a fairly regular basis. Michael, you know, start start us off. And in the first show of the new year, we can go into what our expectations are uh, for, for the year ahead and what we think the major stories are going to be. But lead us off, Michael. And then Dove, want to get your sense. Patrick, yours. And then uh, and then Mark, yours. Go ahead. It, you know, it's hard to think of a story that didn't get the, the coverage it deserved because, you know, we're in an era where there's just so many media outlets and there's so much news. And it's, the problem is you don't know what to believe anymore. And a lot of these things just get, get lost in, in the white noise. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I've watched OAN for 15 minutes and can't believe some of what I see. And I think our problem has become you can't blame people for believing this stuff. If they're watching OAN, if they're watching Newsmax and to some degree watching entertainers on Fox, and not the news people on Fox, this is where they're getting their information from. And I think it's a, a big threat to our, the underlying fundamentals of our democracy because all of a sudden truth doesn't matter anymore. And that's a, a, you know, a serious threat. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the Republican Party is no, no longer the party of Reagan, where you have folks like Tucker Carlson getting into these fights with guys like Congressman Mike Turner on the air about whether we should be providing aid to Ukraine, uh, where all of a sudden you have a wing of the Republican Party uh, that Tucker Carlson's a part of saying, well, maybe we should support the Russians uh, in, in this. So the, the United States is kind of losing its sense of itself. And what is it that we are 
stand, what we stand for on, on the global stage. And that leads into some of the policy documents you asked about in previous podcasts as to what is it we want to do and what is it we need the military to do? And then what is it that we, what force structure do we need in order to back that up is a debate that I think has been lost for, for, for a long time. Um, well, and I think that that's what resuscitates for some uh, the fairness doctrine, right? I mean, there's a sense that the 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 uh, uh, the uh, when we rescinded the fairness doctrine is what caused um, you know much more hyper partisanship uh, in you know and in, in an ability to actually print falsehood, right? I mean, at the end of the day, news organizations were governed by it. Certainly, when I was in college, we studied the fairness doctrine very closely because that was supposed to be one of the guiding lights. Of, of how you did uh, television. Uh, Dove, your, your sense on the key uh, stories uh, of, of 2021 uh, that, that you think will be sort of most significantly shaping the year ahead, because I thought uh, Michael, you know, Iron Mike nailed it on the head, but go ahead. Well, first of all, uh, the, what, what Mike was talking about is actually a reversion of the Republican Party to the days of Robert Taft and isolationism. Uh, and you had the Chicago Tribune, which was one of the big media stars of those days, supporting that. And so uh, in many ways, the Republic, you know, what stopped the Republican Party then was the election of Dwight Eisenhower. And I don't see a Dwight Eisenhower on the horizon, but there may be one. So that's something to keep watching. It's not simply a bunch of crazies. It, it, it's, it's a reversion to an isolationism that I think plays out in what Carlson says, well, who cares about Ukraine and so on. Uh, two other items, which uh, I think were really struck me from the uh, Reagan Institute polling. One was the degree to which uh, the average American now sees China as the major threat to this country. It's up at around 70 percent. It was uh, three years ago, it was below 30 percent, as I recall. That's a big deal because it means that what Congress is doing and the kinds of things that we've talked about in this program over the weeks, uh, really does have public support. And if they do more vis-a-vis -vis China, it'll still have public support. So that's one additional area that I think is important. And then a, a, another troubling area is the decline in, in public trust in the military, which now runs at about 45% and was much, much higher in the very recent past. Uh, it may have to, a lot to do with Lafayette Square. It may have to do with other things. But whatever it is, that is a worrying, worrying development because in any event, we're talking about a military that is fenced off from the public because of security around bases uh, that is voluntary and the public that we have no national service. So the public doesn't really appreciate what the military does for them on a day to day basis. Uh, that is not a good sign. And I would hope that the next poll would show an uptick rather than another decline. Uh, that it certainly would be. And I think that that was a very uh, valuable uh, survey. And it's the third, at least second time, if not the third time, right, Dove? So it does give us sort of firm data points at how these views have been evolving over time, right? Which is what makes them even more significant than, than just sort of one-time uh, one reports. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is a trend, and that's why I think it's, uh, with China, it's, it's not a bad trend at all. But when it comes to trust in the military, it's a very worrisome trend. Patrick, uh, what were sort of the biggest stories for you uh, over over the course of the year that you know we should be we should be thinking about as we go into twenty twenty two and what it tells us to expect in the new year? Well, I think China and not just Russia have moved further and faster toward uh, 
the ability to execute new combat operations in a way that maybe was unexpected five, six, ten years ago. Um, this is a, a trend. It's not just this past year, but I think they're just the signs are clear that Xi Jinping is is going to be willing to use force to uh, uh, sort of obtain his core goals if necessary. Not that he wants to. I think both China and Russia would love to have a pretext to uh, to use their military instruments of power in the future. Um, but um, they may not wait for that pretext either. I'm reminded that uh, Margaret Thatcher thought she could avoid conflict over the Falkland Islands by just not instigating and giving a pretext to the junta in, in Argentina. Uh, it, it turned out that no, they wanted the Falklands after all, um, and they ended conflict, entered conflict. So I think that's, for me, the big defense uh, takeaway. Um, I'm still confident and, 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 and optimistic about our own resilience, about our own allies and partners, our own capabilities. And I see the seeds of that resilience being born, uh, even in all these difficult times. But um, clearly, um, the challenges ahead are, are tremendous. Money? You know, first, I, I agree completely with uh, with Patrick's comments. I, I think I, I had three takeaways uh, from this year. First, the, the Europeans have taken a much tougher approach to Russia and China and taken that much more seriously in a way that's much more, consent, you know, um, complementary to, to U.S. thinking on these revanchist states. And, and I think even the the recent uh, comments by the foreign minister of Germany yes. and Alina Bierbach and the comments about uh, Nord Stream 2 are, are a good indication of that. And that's despite the really the poor treatment they received from the United States during the Afghanistan withdrawal decision making and execution. The second big trend is, I think, well, India is still a long way to go to a traditional alliance relationship. I think this year moved the ball quite a bit along. I think the uh, both the, initially the Trump, but then very much the Biden administration have done a lot to cultivate that. And then the third one I'd have is uh, building on Dove's comments about the Reagan Institute. The other big breakout uh, risk and or vulnerability in that was the public's accurate perception of the of the risk in cyber and the fact that it's increasing greatly. And I think you know we have not done the basic blocking and tackling to build the public-private collaboration to protect our critical infrastructure as such we will remain at significant risk over the next few years. And so um, again, that, a great Reagan Institute survey that kind of showed China and cyber as two as, as the American public definitely understanding the threats that face us. I would agree with you on that, uh, Mark. Uh, and one of the things I want to point out uh, on yesterday's program, we had uh, Emmanuel Mignot, uh, the uh, diplomatic advisor to France's uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Thierry Burkhardt. And, and one of the points that he made in, um, in uh, what we were discussing, um, the chairman's strategic vision, um, this sort of sense that uh, powers large and small are increasingly uninhibited by uh, laws, norms, and, and conventions, which makes them particularly problematic as great power competition or major power competition hardens. And one of the other things which I think the strategy deserves a lot of credit for is to win before uh, the war, right? How do you shape these events uh, to ensure success and try to take a, a page out of both the Russian and the Chinese playbook as France looks to develop its strategy as an important power in the world? So I commend people to both check out the document uh, as well as check out our interview, which I thought was particularly thoughtful. Um, let, me, let me just ask a very quick round the horn 
Very, very quick question before we go, because obviously there'll be news flow on this before we convene next, uh, or likely to be news flow, given that the budget is now being worked and going back and forth across the uh, across the river between the Pentagon and 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 the White House. Uh, and let's uh, let's go in the order that we've gone from across the board. Is the upcoming administration's first defense budget and long year defense plan really going to be as needle moving? as it needs to be for where we are, right? Because we say each year, next year, and next year becomes the year after, and the needle is not really moving as quickly as anybody has wanted it to do. But now there's a sense of real urgency very quickly, very briefly across the board. Are we going to see some big changes? Are you guys detecting significant movement, or is this going to be more of the same? Go ahead. Um, Michael, Dove, Patrick, uh, and then bring us home, Monty. Well, if we don't know what's going to be in the next defense budget, but I think if the first one is any indication, I would say the answer is no. Um, you know that the, the first budget would not keep was not even going to keep pace with inflation. And here you have a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, adding twenty five billion uh, to President Biden's uh, budget request uh, in an era where he's spending enormous amounts of money on non-defense domestic discretionary. So what's an extra 25 billion when you're spending trillions and trillions on, uh, you know, COVID relief and infrastructure and now potentially on, on build back better. So I uh, am not confident that the administration uh, is heading on the right path when it comes to defense spending uh, and strategy and international engagement. Dove. I think a lot will depend on what uh, the administration's reaction ultimately is to what Putin does. And of course, what he does, I think if there's a, a real invasion of Ukraine, the administration might wake up. Otherwise, I'm totally with Mike on this. I think that you'll see the authorizers plussing up the budget again. And then, of course, if the Republicans take over both the House and the Senate, then you've got a very big question uh, if there's a CR, as they may well again be, uh, whether the Republicans are pro-defense Republicans or budget-cutting Republicans. We just don't know. So uh, my guess is probably not very much movement unless uh, Putin really provokes something outrageous. Uh, and then a major question mark as to what happens with the appropriation. Patrick? It's what we have. And I, I think it is a step forward. Um, even if it's not enough, it's never going to satisfy the people who want a bolder approach or uh, want to be ready for uh, contingencies that we hope will not be coming. I, I think we should all be hedging in, into 2022 that uh, the challenges are going to be bigger than we're prepared for. Um, and therefore, this budget's going to be found wanting. And yet, I still think uh, we are doing a lot right now uh, in terms of rebuilding America, in terms of forging allies and partners uh, in, in, a, in, in sort of cooperation. Um, and um, events will force us to do more. But uh, at this point, I think this is about as much as we probably can be doing. Mani? I'm optimistic that the 23 budget will have some good um, military posture and acquisition and operations and maintenance investments for the Indo-PACOM theater. I'm uh, optimistic that they'll get to the right answer. I think they have the right team in place to properly focus on the challenges we have in Indo-PACOM. Obviously, if some of the congressional arguments that were mentioned earlier occur, then it won't really matter what the DOD budget put forward is. But I think DOD's budget could very well address a lot of, uh, incrementally address a lot of our Indo-PACOM concerns. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, really, really appreciate it. It's always a treat and a pleasure having you all on. Uh, thanks very much for the support over the course of uh, what has been a, a trying and a challenging year. And already looking forward to having you guys back on again 
uh, next year on a regular basis, including our first show of the year, so that this team can talk to us about what their expectations are for 2022. Thanks so very much and hope you all have a great holiday and a very happy new year. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.